Welcome back to the Illuminati Roundtable. <laughs> I mean, um, um, the uh, the COINTEL Pro debriefing. No, oof, no, no, no. Um, the uh, the MK Ultra Theater where we're all strapped to our seats with our eyelids open, watching heinous things to classical music. No, no. What is this? Is uh, Black Hoodie Alchemy? That's what this is, right? Not, not those other things. Um, I think, I think I was mixing my, my play with my work again there. I do that sometimes. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, definitely none of those other things. So, Black Hoodie Alchemy here on the Fringe FM um, every Monday night, 6 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host Anthony Tyler, and today we're gonna talk about some pretty heavy shit viewer discretion advised not not a joke there um but real quick i want to say shout out to the one and only jungle dolphin my homie duncan he made this fantastic intro i'm really in love with it i absolutely adore it thank you very much duncan you're my homie go check out his uh some of his recorded material he's the producer with some of his homies um new view do check that out on spotify or wherever else you stream your music um also special shout out to justin otto a host of the dharma junkie podcast and a real good friend of mine um i really really uh, appreciate all his help for the audio engineering stuff he's helped me with and um you know because i'm no stranger to this but it's been a while since i've done some of the editing stuff and especially since i also expected to do this live more often and uh we'll definitely be getting there so also i'm working on my peas my peas the popping of the peas um hopefully that doesn't come across too aggressive so we'll see i think it'll be just fine disclaimer there though cut me a little slack all right. So first off, what I want to talk about, we're going to get into Adolfo Constanzo and the Narco Satanicos cult, the Narco Satanists. But first, I want to talk about. Uh, I want to set the stage a little bit, and so I'm going to read a bit that I found from. Uh, there's a there's an old interview you can find online of Philip K. Dick, um, author of. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And many other great stories. Uh, but that ended up becoming Blade Runner. So um, most people are at least familiar with the idea of Blade Runner. You know, neo-noir detective hunting down androids trying to be humans. And the whole theme is this existential dilemma of what does it even mean to be a human? So um, Philip K. Dick was always interested in this stuff. And he... He was very, here's the thing, like, especially as he got older, he got more and more mystical, if you will, you know, and he ends up talking about, uh, you know, some of his like straight up visions and very, very alchemical, mystical. He was very much into Gnosticism, uh, like Christian Gnosticism. And uh, um, he, now some people think it, it gets a bit wooey. You know, some people would roll their eyes at anybody just getting into sort of mystical philosophy and talking about 
um, some of the, the visions that he had, but, and, you know, he talks about, like, things that sound like um, a hallucinogenic drug, and, I mean, mystical experiences pretty much are like that, um, more often than not, um, or at least to some degree or another, always, so I'm not going to get into Philip K. Dick's uh, experiences like that here, um, but I will say that he was somebody that even the more he got into these kinds of things, uh, you can find throughout his life, the people who knew him and the, the, the things he talked about, you can find that he stayed humble. You know, these things were, they, they wisened him up more and more and they kept him humble. And that's kind of the takeaways to these things. If, uh, if you're not maintaining a sense of humility and gratefulness for life, then these uh, the studies and the things that we're doing are not going. They're they're just going to be jading you, and they're not going to be really helping you or anybody else in the long run. So, um, I have this little bit in my book, Hunt Manual. And it's not going to be too long, but um, it really sets the stage for how I want to go about talking about Adolfo Constanzo. Um, and how we should, like, this is how, this is how, this is my relationship to death. And I think this is how the normal person has a relationship to death. And I think that uh, the way Philip K. Dick puts it is very uh, cathartic and not, like, visceral, but in a not, like, gory or gritty way. So check it out. You'll see what I mean. Truly, this existential dilemma of the hunt is indirectly summed up perfectly by none other than, yes, old PKD, uh, in an interview given from his living room towards the latter portion of his career. With a deep sense of reflection on his life, his work, and his beliefs, the interview is humble and insightful, and in it, Dick reflects on a tumultuous time in which he had to kill a rat that he had been poisoned, or, or that had been poisoned by a trap in his house. In an attempt to put it out of its misery, it became an existential straw that broke the science fiction author's back and struck, uh, stuck with him for the rest of his life. In the interview, reflecting on this moment, Dick says, quote, Here was this rat. He was poisoned, his neck was broken, stabbed with the tine of a pitchfork, and he was still alive um, in, until he was finally drowned. And that's my little insert for you guys. Context. Um, and I buried my St. Christopher's medal with that rat. The soul of that, that soul of that rat I carried on me from then on as a question and as a problem about the condition of the living creature on this world. That rat had come into my house to get food and had suffered a terrible death and was terrified of me. I would have, uh, I would have let it go if I could have let it go, and yet I'd had to kill that rat. I, as its tormentor, could not save it even though I wanted to save it. End quote there. Um, and the author goes on to talk about how that is um, brought him to his considerations of his his Gnostic Christian leanings. The idea that the, the Gnostic idea that essentially, you know, there's many ways you could go deeper into the structure and the symbolism of Gnosticism, but just general boilerplate is Gnostics believe that their 
they were a spiritual group formed it's almost like the the fourth unsung abrahamic you know because there's the uh there's uh hebrew islamic and christianity well then there's also gnosticism and it is the idea that the the abrahamic god usually yahweh particularly um i mean i guess that's all the abrahamic god but that's also a debate but anyway so yahweh as example is not perfect and some Gnostics actually consider Yahweh the devil. Now, I don't go that far, but I do think, here's the thing. I think that it shows that when we read the, even, even the Bible, you know, when you, when you really parse through religious scripture that, uh, at least that has shaped us in the West, you know, let's not mince words. Let's just keep it simple let's talk about examples let's go with the bible here um you find that it, you know yahweh isn't even perfect in the bible truly just read it honestly i mean in the book of job it's one of the most stark examples where we see that yahweh is trying to figure out his relationship to, to job just as much as job is trying to figure out his relationship to yahweh so Gnostics essentially believe that there is a God above gods. And there's something greater than Yahweh or any other God. And that's uh, that's the true God of love. And I don't know, you know, you can interpret that however you like. But I do think that uh, the symbolism is very interesting and it's worth considering. You know, I don't subscribe particularly to any school of thought, but Gnosticism has definitely influenced me. Um, I guess if I leaned the most in any direction, it would be hermeticism. Um, but all that said, I think that there is a really, really pertinent takeaway with the idea that many times throughout life, um, we as aggressors in a situation can't change the circumstances. You know, like, regardless of the wartime scenario, and I'm speaking right now, I'm just saying all wartime scenario, regardless of the politics, when you're in the battlefield, you know, you just, you just have to go for it. it. You know, kill or be killed at that point, and, um, you know, even if you don't want to. So, these are facts of life, genuine facts of life that you're not going to hear as much in new age consideration certainly not laws of attraction while there are laws of intention it's much deeper than attraction and alchemy and hermeticism among other things very much show us that in many cases the law of opposites rules overall so i have a sense of humility even if i gotta kill a mosquito i still kill them especially mosquitoes. I'll put up a mouse trap if I have to. But I don't take it lightly. I don't cry. But I I very much consider it. You know, I don't take mortality lightly. I respect it and I appreciate it for what it is. But Adolfo Constanzo definitely did not. 
So let's talk about this guy here. Adolfo Constanzo of the Narco-Satanists. From, it was like, 86 to 89. Um, Constanzo died when he was 25. So this guy was active very early. Um, let's see, he had a, uh, a group of uh, four individuals. Uh, four dudes and actually a, a priestess as well. And they were part of a... The, the narco-Satanists were a, a... Like a mid-level, like a working, but not like elite... Um, they were drug runners for cartel families. And and these families weren't like the most elite, like El Chapo, but they were cartel families. And um, so... So they ran different drugs and performed different types of human sacrifice and did certain kinds of, uh, Constanzo in particular, would perform all sorts of blessings and magical spells of empowerment to local, what do you call it, socialites. You know, just like the local elite, the people who had money, some of the politicians. He didn't have like all of Mexico in his pocket, but the people in his sphere would actually come and legitimately seek his services and pay for those services. And Constanzo lived well, even before all the drug running. And some of that drug running included robbing drug dealers uh, and, you know, like executing some of the cartel families to take over their assets these guys were hardcore they were not screwing around so it, it and, and it starts with constanzo you know his childhood had to do with this offshoot of one of these um religions that continued to find its fruition with the uh, the slave cultures that were uh, taken from their homelands, you know, along with voodoo and Santeria, uh, there is Palo, and there are different offshoots of Palo, um, and there are different tenets of it, and it, it's actually one of those that's been more obfuscated than the others. You know, voodoo has been something that's very much interested the culture, the Western culture now, uh, for legitimate and not so like for marketing reasons as well. But um, something like Palo is still very much secreted. Now, there are secret aspects to all these things. You know, you don't know everything until you're in the inner circle, and then you still probably don't know everything. But Palo is something that, it, yeah, you, there's a lot we don't know about. Let's just put it like that. And we don't know fully we know the basics from like an anthropological sort of perspective but in terms of the still practicing culture of palo it's it, it, it's not exactly like a super well-known thing so um we can speculate a little bit but we don't even really need to do that for this episode what we do need to talk about is the some of the metaphysics of palo mayombe now like i said mayombe being an offshoot of palo so it's Paolo Mayombe. Um, Constanzo was... So, well, first I'll say, one of the, the like the core motifs of this metaphysical belief is ancestral worship and how you, there, you use tethers from the physical world, 
like essentially the physical world is a tether for the spiritual. So they use those tethers to further create and bind and strengthen their relationship to what they call the Nganga, which is, um, um, I don't claim to know all of it, but it seems to tie into ancestral worship a little bit, uh, but not exclusively. I don't think the Nganga, the Nganga seems to be like an, like an environmental spirit, like a, like an elemental in a way. And, you know, and, um, it's pretty in line with Santeria and things like that, you know, the sacrificing of the chickens and whatnot that would go into this cauldron. And that is the Nganga. And you put in this cauldron all sorts of decomposing parts from sacrificed things. And you let the essence, the spiritual essence, decompose and, yeah, further bind and strengthen that Nganga. And it's supposed to be in, like, a, at its core, like an alchemical thing. Granted, I'm not talking about, and nor do I advocate the sacrificing of chickens or small animals or anything like that. But we have to look culture by culture. I'm also not going to judge an indigenous culture. Um, I'm going to judge for human sacrifice. There are lines, but like chickens and I don't know. I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to uh, recommend you go out and do it. And certainly not in America, but if, you know, like I said, I'm just not going to judge an indigenous culture like that. So, because um, I, I was not raised up in it. And there are certain things like, you know, certain certain cultures eat dog i'm not going to judge them for that um but anyway like it's all about intention obviously a christian is not going to be on board with any chicken cutting like that but me it's all about intention and we'll get into that more but in terms of palo mayombe long story short i find it very interesting the idea of like think of it like this Regardless of the metaphysics here, how would you feel if you had a cauldron in your backyard, in your shed, that was full of decomposing chicken heads? How would you feel? Regardless of the metaphysics, that would create a whole different headspace for you. Even if no one else knew, you would forever know, and you would always, to yourself, be the person that had that cauldron of chicken heads in the backyard with the with the spirit attached to it and that would create a radically different headspace even if it was in the back of your brain in the recesses it would cook there and it would incubate it would and it would stew memetically you know memetics are the study of psychological viruses good and bad and when those viruses incubate and then expand and it it, it seems to in some cases, open up faculties of the brain that it's not like we didn't have access to before, but we had no reason to access them. I don't know what all that means. You know, this is just the beginning point. What we're accessing is a different question, but I do think that that's the trail of breadcrumbs that leads towards metaphysics. You know, we're talking about hypnosis, trance states, psychedelic states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness in general. So that's how I feel about it. Like this is, this can be practical leading into the greater all the same. 
So, Constanzo scares the shit out of me, not just because of the kinds of things he did, but the fact that, from a practical level, this seems to be, like, the most working, like, esoteric magician, one of the most, of, like, any cult leader. Most of them are just bullshitting nonsense, just talking about whatever insanity. Like, in the first episode, my my methamphetamine and LSD and bedazzled jackets, and it was going to be my cult paradise, and you all live in dog houses out back. We'll talk about that later. That could still be a good idea. But, <laughs> for real. Um, um, Constanzo was insane, but he, well, he, he was smart. He, he wasn't criminally insane, where he didn't know what he was doing. He definitely knew what he was doing. Uh, because that's what criminal insanity is on a technical level. But he was obviously evil to his core. And I don't know what all he achieved. But if you want to say, if nothing else, he achieved a lot of tangible power and fear. And, you know, on a level that few of us can comprehend. Very, very few of us. And if anybody can comprehend those kinds of power and fear those levels uh i i don't want you to listen to this podcast you sound very very evil um and that's why i read the philip k dick part at the beginning so so that's what constanzo would do once he got a footing in he he grew up in miami his mother was into palo mayombe she knew people who were into it and apparently he grew up in this offshoot that was very much into the really dark side of things. Constanzo was like Richard Ramirez meets Aleister Crowley. Absolutely insane. And he didn't do any drugs either. He wanted to stay pure and keep his powers honed in. His, his drug was fear and adrenaline, like instilling fear in others. Um, so let's see. There's a lot of different... You know, let me let me talk about this. Mark Kilroy. We'll set the stage because there's a lot of different uh, angles to the narco satanist story, but the ending is kind of well. The story of Mark Kilroy is what brought the House of Cards really down, and it is the story. See, these guys were kidnapping and torturing to instill fear in people because fear was part of the ritual. And then they would sacrifice them and use certain parts of them, depending on the circumstance, to feed their nganga. And they would put in the cauldron. They would kill a strong man if they wanted strength for the nganga. And they would kill people with these certain attributes to bestow upon the nganga, which would then protect them. Constanzo was telling these people that they had... They, they were invisible to police, that they were invincible, that they were just straight up walking warlock magicians for Mexican Satan. And they technically didn't worship any form of Satan, but archetypally speaking, yes, this is obviously satanic, but that's like loose, we're talking about arch evil. I mean, because these guys were definitely evil. This is definitely black magic. But in spring break of 1989, college student Mark Kilroy went to Matamoros, Mexico 
to enjoy his time with his homies and the legal drinking age of 18. And Matamoros, Mexico is, which I, I know I'm pronouncing super white, please forgive me, <laughs> but it's just, it is what it is. Um, Matamoros, Mexico is right next to, it's separated by like a river from Brownsville, Texas. So kids go to Brownsville, Texas, and they hop over to Matamoros and enjoy themselves a good old spring break. And that's what, you know, Mark Kilroy thought was going on. That's how it started. And then um, after, you know, one of the nights there, I can't remember if it was the first one or not, him and his friends are uh, walking back over the bridge to get to their car, head back home. Mark stops to take a quick pisser in the bushes. They decide not to wait for him, and they never see him again. They wait for him at the car. They never see him again. Don't leave your friends to piss alone in strange places. Jeez. For real. Rest in peace, Mark. This is what happens. So, the the narco-Satanists, they, they've been walking around as police officers for some time. They have badges. They're just walking around with impunity. Um, they And they think that they are these straight-up black magic warlocks that are untouchable. So, they go and uh, they tell Mark... He is arrested for public intoxication, and they got to bring him down. Bring him down and book him in the old precinct. Um, and Mark just follows him, and he, but he does make a break for it at some point. And he actually, if he had just kept running another 60 seconds or something, just a little further down, he would have made it to a main downtown strip where there was still thousands of people walking around and he would have been able to get someone's attention or blend in well enough to get away. But um, when he slipped out of their grasp and they realized he was getting away, they yelled freeze. They really worked with their uh, their police disguise and poor Mark froze. So they, uh, they bound him up, threw him, I think it was back into a van, and they brought him to a ranch where they first tortured him in a, in a variety of ways and then they sharpened the machetes and gave the the contents of his skull to the cauldron yeah so these guys are sick not like sick bro they're ve- <laughs> they're very sick um like i said that's what brought the the house of cards down because people definitely reported mark kilroy missing and brownsville pd got invested how could they not and they thankfully had some connections in matamaros with the uh the federal police in mexico and that got them a foothold around there so they started they they started getting boots on the ground and they started going in to matamaros and doing investigations, and then going back to Brownsville and following up and doing paperwork. And um, but it's interesting because American police doing this kind of investigation, boots on the ground in Mexico, things are a little different in Mexico. You don't even need search warrants. You know, if you have the Mexican, uh, the federal police backing you, that's it. You got a gold star. So 
but it still was not easy. Took a lot of hunting down leads and took a little bit of getting lucky even because one of the dumb ones of the group, Seraphine, the narco-Satanist, eventually got caught because he thought he was invulnerable and invisible and eventually started spilling the beans about their torture sacrifice ranch, about the Nganga, about it all. And we're about to jump into a break here. We're at the top of the half hour. You're listening to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I am Anthony Tyler. We're here on the Fringe FM, and stay tuned. We'll be right back to talk more about the narco-Satanists and try and bring a little bit of positive positive light to the end of this to a wrap up here. Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at imdarkwaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at imdarkwaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dog Man Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dog Man Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dog man. Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at imdarkwaters.com. That's imdarkwaters.com. Do you want to escape the simulation? Well, join me, Jess Rogie, every week as we explore a variety of different realities to help expand our minds and find out a little more about this world we live in. Escape the simulation with me live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern here on TheFringe.fm. Listen, as we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, High strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential. Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. From parapsychology to pop conspiracy, and from parapolitics to health and esoterica, I'm Ryan Gable, host of The Secret Teachings, and I'll bring you all of this and more five nights a week right here on The Fringe FM. By using critical thinking and objectivity as keys to understanding, utilizing, and appreciating the secret teachings of all ages. You can catch The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday right here on The Fringe FM after Joe Rook and Lighting the Void. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard. 
and they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. You hoy there, it's Gigi from Shift Happens, and you're listening to the one and only Fringe FM. Well, at least I'd imagine so. I'm not sure how else, uh, you know, you'd be hearing this. Alchemy, thanks for tuning back in and uh, sticking with us through that little commercial break there. I am Anthony Tyler, and we are talking about Adolfo Constanzo and the Narco Satanist. Now, before the break, we were talking about how how the dumb one of the group of these uh, Narco Satanists. I think some of these guys uh, they they had to have some sort of discretion. I don't know how they, clearly they took this stuff literally, but and they very much believed all the their powers, but they had to know that some of it was like allegorical or something because everyone maintained composure. They, you know, they weren't blasting their guns off and wagging their dick in front of police. So one of the dudes, Seraphine, he just took it too literally for too long and got too cocky and just really thought that he was like the police could not touch him and started speeding away from him and got in a a, a chase like a high speed chase that brought them to the cat uh, to the to the ranch they didn't know what was going on at the ranch and he was brought into custody and there was some like drug things and they still had to flesh out the whole situation they had no idea and then in custody Seraphine is just so out of his mind that eventually he just starts to talk about what's going on at the ranch and because he really truly believes that he is going to be uh he is going to have total metaphysical impunity here like Constanzo is just going to walk in break him out and these people are going to be like men in black in, in with amnesia or something I mean I don't know exactly what he thought but he did think that all this was going to work out fine and that he was going to be untouchable so in that sort of like classical, sort of in a, a like a, as I've seen footage of him talking, he's like sheepish, but what he does seems very evil masterminded, like the mastermind revealing his plans to the helpless villain or a hero, where he kind of just starts rambling to the, to the cops about all this human sacrifice and things, and then he eventually brings them up to the ranch and they find not just Mark Kilroy's body, but they find, I can't remember how many bodies were exactly found on that ranch, but I know that the cult is, uh, they're, 
they have like 13 confirmed kills and there's like an estimate of up to 23 so they were not they were not screwing around and so they they caught the rest of the cult members and then constanzo made it out and so did his priestess sarah who by the way was just your regular old college student in brownsville by day brownsville community college student by night a satanic priestess what has the world come to uh but like genuinely wild hard to wrap your head around genuinely wild i don't i don't understand i don't understand how you could compartmentalize like that that's just crazy i mean it makes a little more sense that these guys were at least living it but how do you maintain a regular life it happens more often than we think i'm not getting into satanic panic here but let's be real you know i brought it up so let's talk about it a little bit this is part of what really spurred uh, satanic panic as we know it initially in the modern era things like this the mcmartin preschool scandal which was ultimately uh, a lot of crock some people will get really mad at me saying that some deep conspiracy theorist but look we got to draw a line somewhere i'm not going to get into it but it did help stir satanic panic and then there was also the whole son of sam and the process church of the final judgment that's something i'll get into soon too because that story i know people like i've talked to i'm not friends with him but i've talked to him in cordial ways about research um a couple times uh josh zeman the director of the the documentary cropsy that some people might recognize and then he did the sons of sam documentary because he he was basically the inheritor of maury terry's research maury terry's work all of it um and maury terry was the guy who wrote the ultimate evil which was the book relating son of sam to the process church of the final judgment now we could talk about the ultimate evil and you know it definitely gets into it build it it built the satanic panic hype to exponential degrees but josh josh zeman is definitely not um someone who's into he does not feel the satanic panic at all even though he understands certain realities to these things um satanic panic in and of itself as we know it as it exists culturally is just not helpful to anyone because it's inaccurate um it paints inaccurate views of beliefs and it paints inaccurate scales of like how often these things are going on you know because obviously most vast majority of anybody who considers themselves satanist is a atheistic levee sort of satanist but i digress these things along with the narco satanists and some others but yeah these were three big ones and there's a little there's some truth to um i think the fact that at least a berkowitz didn't act alone i think he was hanging out with some really weird people and maybe at the very least those really weird people were hanging out with extra weird people who were doing some vaguely organized things but it's not like you could take that to levels of the Illuminati per se. But the process church of the final judgment is weird. And that's a cult we'll talk about. But the narco-Satanist thing, this is not embellished. At all. If anything, just the beliefs are embellished. Like, 
the beliefs of the people clearly but not just the the cultists even like in mexico there is a different and more pervasive level of spiritual belief than there is here in the u.s even still so while this investigation was going on the the mexican police were also enlisting the help of um certain mystics you know to help with divination and good luck and breaking hexes and different things but i really like it because they were doing this on top of doing a really good job at their police work i can't speak for every single policeman here but the people who headed this investigation in conjunction with um the american police did a very good job so and they weren't they were no nonsense men they were very serious about taking down crime lords in Mexico and had done it many times by then. Uh, one man in particular I'm thinking of, but I can't remember his name. It doesn't really matter to the story. He was just the head Mexican fed on the job. But every single person working that case wanted to double down and make sure that they had some mystics on their side to work with undoing whatever Constanzo could do on his end. You know, while being proper police officers and uh, actually investigating. I find that really interesting. Because even if they didn't believe he had all the power he said he did, most of them clearly thought he had some sort of power. And if they didn't, well, they just wanted to play it safe anyway. And that adds a whole interesting mystical police angle to this that is just that part is really unique and I, I i like that a lot i i i appreciate that um and i i agree with them essentially look keep it empirical keep it skeptical don't get into woo but if we look at at what i talked about before how how would you feel what kind of altered states would you cultivate if you were already sociopathic and you were already keeping chicken heads in a cauldron in your backyard? You know, that's just... That's just chicken heads. What about human brains? Um, I do think, especially since so f very, very few of us, you know, like the closest thing, maybe like a wartime scenario and seeing gore um but like that's that's really the only way you're gonna get it a any sort of reference like experience like that and be just a regular public member and that's gonna scar you obviously but how that feels i don't want to know either but I, th I, th I think that the further you go down s certain psychological rabbit holes the more that, you know, the Richard Dawkins memetics, the more these memes incubate in your brain and then they spread in one way or another, good or bad. And I think they create portals in your brain. And those portals could be just as simple as totally new ideas, uh, states of thought, ways of living. Or it could be even other things. You know, I, I read a John Keel quote in the last episode that 
you know, you can reference here, but I won't read it again. So eventually, when uh, when the police find Constanzo's ranch, they they don't find Constanzo, but they find the rest of them. They 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 get them all together. I think they find I think they've all split, but they eventually get back to the ranch and and they found the bodies and eventually they round up everyone but Constanzo and the priestess Sarah uh, Aldretti, I think her last name is. And um, these guys all still feel pretty untouchable. I think Seraphine, the first one, has been a little rattled by, at this point. But none of them seem phased. They're all stone-cold killers in the most evil... Like I said, this is like Aleister Crowley meets Richard Ramirez. It's absolutely insane. And to weed out Constanzo, apparently one of the mystics working with the police says, if you want... To flush him out, you need to burn his his cabin, his shack with the Nganga. Um, send him a message. He won't be able to handle that. So they do. They do a, a, a televised broadcast of the burning of his shack. And, and then they dispose of the Nganga. You can't burn a cauldron, but you can burn everything else and then dump the cauldron in a far-off bush where no one's ever going to see it, or however you do that. I have no idea, but they did that. Um, whew. My God, I can only... Yeah. Uh, um, so, Dad reportedly actually sent Constanzo on a frenzy. That, it, it, like, a real... That was like... This is the thing. Like, whether or not there was actually any spirit attached to that... Constanzo did some sort of weird psychological mimetic mind melding with this whole complex in his psyche. And when they destroyed the shack with the Nganga, it destroyed a whole chunk of his psyche. It was almost as if he was using, in an allegorical sense, that weird fucked up cauldron as like, like a thumb drive to his own consciousness. Th that's how he perceived it. And once that was gone, he lost all that hard work and data and couldn't f and, and just went on a frenzy and like reportedly started burning money and just uh, self-destructive in a, in, a, in a frenzied self-destruction, put it like that. Um, and, you know, I can't remember from here because I'm not looking at any notes, but I know this story well. And so I'm just telling you as I know it. And I'm only telling the details that I remember for certain. Um, and he, that leads to him getting caught. I can't remember how exactly, but it leads to him getting caught. They say that he, he shows up, when the police show up, he has self-inflicted gun wounds. So he killed himself. But I heard um, the... the the ranking officer from Brownsville on the case in an interview talk about how there was like 20 something bullet holes in Constanzo and how he believed that, um, not that it really matters with someone like this, let's be real, but he believed that, um, the Mexican PD just shot him the hell up because they were terrified of him. You know, they knew that even if they could, so if, if they weren't able to capture him, they would be tortured and sacrificed probably in the most horrendous ways imaginable or they could put him in prison 
where he had ample time to work his black magic however long he wanted. No one wanted to chance that, so they killed him. And then uh, not long after, um, the priestess uh, Sarah Aldretti was caught. And, it, and, and, that, and that wraps it up, really. Not the episode yet, but that is the timeline, essentially, of the whole narco-Satanist thing. Let's talk about a little bit of follow-up here, though. Like, some of the recurring themes between this episode and last episode. The idea of belief as a tool to utilize the imagination to open up vastly altered states of consciousness for positive and negative reasons. And how perhaps, perhaps those states of consciousness might open up certain portals, energetic portals, in rare circumstances. See, these things start with the imagination. They start with Jungian projections. But I think the more you look at unexplainable phenomena, the more you look at, you know, because I consider this unexplainable phenomena at this point. You know, it's not a ghost story. No, these guys weren't levitating or anything. No Bigfoot in this story. But how this happened, what the hell happened? It It's getting in the minds of all these people and understanding the human psychology of how this all unraveled pretty damn unexplainable not to mention esoteric in the darkest worst ways and these people really believed what they were doing they were and and, and their spirituality was that of predator and prey they did not believe they were evil they thought that they were f- fulfilling the natural cycle of things they were just a lion to the antelope. Then, if that isn't creepy, I don't know what is. So remember this. You know, the, the, the takeaway from something like this is to remember that these things don't always happen. You know, it's few and far between. But they do happen. And you should be thankful for the life you live. I know I am. I'm very grateful. I'm extremely grateful for the life I live. It's pretty modest. It's nothing crazy. But it's nice. And it's not anything to do with this kind of shit. That's part of the reason I appreciate looking into these dark kinds of things. Because I don't let it linger with me. You know, I leave it here, and in my own way, I say I say prayers for the victims, and I don't just treat it as entertainment. You know, it 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 it's insane to hear people talk about their quote unquote favorite serial killers. These these are not baseball cards, but I do find it fascinating. I'm not going to mince words there, but we need to be very careful um, to not keep lines in the sand, right? And even if you are the one setting the rat trap, you're eventually going to be the rat. It's only a matter of time. So do you want to make peace with the universe, the cosmos, God... 
Or do you want to just... You want to just gamble and see how far you can get on your own until you crash and burn. See, I think it's a, a it's part of uh, the great work to learn to work with the cosmos. You know, it's the that's kind of the right-handed path. But I'm, there's good parts of the, the right and left-handed path. Their their approaches. One's more outward. One's more inward. But we'll talk about that some other time. I'd like to leave you with that. Be thankful and grateful, everybody. And I, I hope you, uh, you you got something out of this episode. And, you know, we'll wrap it up here. But I'd like to say thank you one more time to my homie, Duncan. Thanks to Justin Otto. Go check out Dharma Junkie Podcast. Go check out New View Do. View without the E or the, without the I. Links in the description. Go check out my website, divemind.net. Catch me here on the Fringe every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time for new episodes. And then you could catch me on Spotify and Apple uh, the day after. Go check out my books, Hunt Manual and Dive Manual. Lots of similar food for thought. I actually talk about Constanzo in Hunt Manual, among other uh, names. And thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you tuning in, sincerely. And I hope you join me for another round of the CoIntel Pro debriefing. Damn it, why do I keep saying that? I mean, uh, the, 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 um, the padded room where I just sit in a straight jacket and laugh at the wall. Thank you. Have a good one.